Welcome to the Kingdom at Hand podcast. I am Pastor Joe Faldet. Uh, thank you for listening today. Uh, if you'd like to watch this sermon, you'd be welcome to check out our YouTube page, uh, Hosanna Free Lutheran Church. You can also check out our website, www.hosannafreelutheran.com. All right, I read in Jesus' name, Judges 3, verses 12 through 31. Uh, yeah, we're not actually going to get into Shamgar. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in, the cool, in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch, and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord, dead, on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah, where when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Let us pray. Father, as we come to study your word, I ask that you would grant us wisdom, Lord, that we might understand it and apply it into our lives. Lord, that we can live out, as Ehud did, the working of your spirit. Lord, guide us, bless us, change us. Use this to make us more like Christ, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, I was, I was pondering 
uh, what exactly to name this sermon because we're really going to be looking at this in light of evangelism. You know, and so I thought Ehud and evangelism, but then when I put that on the screen, it got to be too long, so I just had to shorten it to Ehud. And one of the realities with the book of Judges and these stories is that there's many aspects of the Christian life in which they can be applied. We could talk about Ehud and sin. You know, we could talk about Ehud and, well, we're going to talk about Ehud and evangelism. We could talk about Ehud and the, the conquering of the nation for Christianity. Ehud and the working of the church. You know, we could talk about these things because the truths found in these stories actually go through Ehud and finding a pastor. Like, you could do that. Because the truths in these stories can be applied into many different aspects of the Christian life. And so as we look at this, I'm going to be applying these truths today to evangelism. And then as we continue through the book of Judges, we're going to be applying those truths to different aspects of the Christian life. And we'll see how it works. Never really know until you get into it. Uh, So we start out by looking at the enemy. So the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so, as we, as we start this, who is Eglon? Like, Eglon becomes really important. Because Eglon is the, he is the focal point of, really, to some extent, the wrath of the Lord. And the wrath of the Lord is working through Eglon against Israel. And as we... We read this story, and actually as we read basically every story throughout the book of Judges, we're going to see that God describes for us an enemy. You know, Shamgar, not much description there. He fought the Philistines. But uh, here we, we get a description of Eglon. And I think that's important. Because as we're interacting with the sinful realities of this world, we're really going to be interacting with people. You know, you don't... You don't fight a government. You fight people. You don't evangelize a city. You evangelize individuals within that city. You know, you don't correct a populace. You correct the people that need correcting. And so as we interact with Christianity into this world, I don't think we should see it as interacting with just this general kind of nameless mass or horde, but rather we need to see the people that really make it up. We need to see the people that are leading that charge. We need to see those individuals because as we're interacting with those individuals, that actually is the open door that God gives to us. And Eglon exists in that manner. Eglon is, well, he's a tactician. He is, maybe not a tactician, but he's a politician. So Eglon, um, Here we see, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And so with this picture that we have up there, uh, I didn't know if you guys knew where the Ammonites and the Amalekites lived. I didn't. (laughs) So if you don't, didn't, um, now you do. So the Moabites existed right on the other side of the Dead Sea. And the Ammonites were to the north of them and the Amalekites were over what's called the Negev. But uh, all of these people were enemies of Israel. They had been enemies of Israel, and they were trying to keep Israel from taking possession of the land.
one of the things that's important here to note is that Eglon is the one that made this alliance. And so Eglon is, what sort of person is Eglon? He is a politician. He is the sort of person that doesn't just do things on his own, but rather he gathers the crowd into him. And he brings together these warring nations because the Ammonites, the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Edomites are excluded from this alliance, but they were all at war with each other. They were constantly fighting each other. And Eglon was a wise enough person to say, you know what, we have a common enemy, let's go against them. And so as we look at who were, so what do we learn from that? When we look at who we're interacting with, we need to know what sort of person they are. You know, is this an, is this an intellectual person? Is this a highly rational person? Is this an emotional person? How do you do that? You know, when we're, so one of the things that we're hoping to do uh, this spring is get together a team of people to go out and to do evangelism. You know, that's something that I've been trying to get organized and that's something that I hope to, will happen this spring. And so as we're doing that, how do we do that? It isn't just by looking at a person and saying, all right, they're probably a non-Christian, I'm going to come and I'm going to give them the gospel. Like, no, we actually need to talk to and interact with these people because all of you, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, you're all different. We're all different. Some of us are more different than others, I understand. But nevertheless, we're all different. And since we're all different, we're going to receive the gospel in different ways. And so as, as Ehud goes up against Eglon, and goes up against the Moabites, the Amalekites, and the Ammonites, he needs to interact with Eglon and all of these people in a specific manner. But in order to do that, he needs to know the man. He needs to know the man that he's talking to, that he's interacting with. And that's the application, one of the applications of this. You know, and that's not all that we learn about Eglon. We also learn that he's a very fat man. You know, and that he likes the cool of the chamber. And we learn all of these things about him. We also learn that he's, he's kind of impulsive and a little foolish too because he sends away his, his servants in the presence of an enemy, which is just crazy talk. You know, who would do that? Because Ehud is an enemy. You know, they're, they're suppressing these people. And so as we get to know more about Eglon, we start to see the open doors that God has provided. So also as we get to know, know more about the people that we're interacting with, that we're trying to bring the gospel to. Because we live in a city, we live in an area that needs Jesus, right? Like this is the reality. Why do we have the problems we have in our nation today? Why do we have the problems we have in Minnesota? Why do we have the problems we have in Watton County? We could go down to the households. Why do we have the problems we have? It's because people don't know Jesus. And so then we need to be bringing Jesus to these people. How do we bring Jesus to the people that we're interacting with? The first step is getting to know those people. Well, actually, the first step is getting to know Jesus, ourselves. The second step is getting to know those people. But as you get to know those people and bring gospel to those people, you'll get to know Jesus better too. And so that's one of the purposes of evangelism. But with that, we now get come to Ehud and we get a better description of Ehud and yeah Ehud is a great guy I, I really enjoyed studying about Ehud because Ehud is distinct then the Lord and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer Ehud the son of Gera the Benjaminite a left-handed man 
How many of you are left-handed? Many of you? Okay, there's, a, there's two. Wow. Oh, I see one of the children raising their hands, but they probably don't know what I'm doing. Um, there's not many left-handed people in this world, are there? In, in our, oh, Corey's the left-handed one too? Okay, so there's, you know, a few, but there's not many. And did you know that historically speaking, left-handed people were looked upon with suspicion? <laughs> they were less trustworthy than the rest of the people because they were left-handed. You know, they, they did things weird because they're left-handed. You know, they have to be more flexible because they're left-handed. You can't trust a left-handed person. And historic is really funny. I, I only believe that a little bit. Um, <laughs> but the reality is, that's the way historically... And when I talk historically, I'm not talking like, well, during the Middle Ages. I'm talking like always. Throughout history, as far as, you know, there's discussion about left and right-handed people, there is discussion about left-handed people being less trustworthy, less reliable, more suspicious than right-handed people. Which is one of the reasons why the schools used to force left-handers to learn to write right-handed, you know, because the schools didn't want them to be wrong all of their life. Um, <laughs> but they, that's a joke. Um, but the schools actually did that. They forced them to learn to use their less dominant, to use their less dominant hand in order to fit in with their general populace. You know, and so when we enter, when we look at Ehud, we need to look at Ehud in light of that. He's a left-handed guy. Oh, that's interesting. No, it's not just interesting. This is a big deal. He's a left-handed man. He is distrusted simply by the very nature of who he is. Because you left-handers, you're shifty. You do things wrong. <laughs> but that's the way he was. I know, it's, it's strange, it's funny, but that's the reality. So as people approached Ehud, they would have approached him as being less trustworthy. But the funny thing is with Ehud, he rises into huge amounts of trustworthiness because he is given the tribute to bring to Eglon. And the Hebrew is a little ambiguous here, but it seems to mean not only was he, done it, was he given it this time, but this was his job. And so it was his responsibility to make sure that that, um, that that tribute always got to the king. And why was it a big deal that the tribute got to the king? Well, it was worth a lot of money. It was a lot of money. We don't, we're not told exactly how much it is, but whenever you were supposed to give a tribute, it wasn't just, you know, pennies on the dollar. It was like, this was real taxation. This was a big deal. And so he was given all of this money and all of this responsibility, even though he was a left-handed man. So this teaches you something about Ehud, right? He was such a trustworthy individual that he was able to overcome the prejudice against him. This is the sort of person that we're interacting with. You know, and that's important. So this fact that he's a left-handed man, given this huge amount of authority, this huge amount of responsibility. Because what happens if bandits come and steal the tribute? Well, the king say, oh, I'm sorry, that's such a bummer. You know, this year you don't have to give us anything. No, that would be like, you know, the government saying, hey, don't worry, you know, just because you've cheated on your taxes, you, you don't have to give us anything, it's fine. No. You know, if bandits came and stole it, they had to re-raise it. 
if someone, if Ehud stole it, the people would have to re-raise this tribute. This tribute's a big deal. And so Ehud is a trustworthy person. He is a reliable person, even though his, he is distinct. He is untrustworthy by prejudice. But Ehud takes that prejudice of being a left-handed person and uses it to his advantage. So this thing that made him different, this thing that made him not fit into the rest of the world, and I'm looking at all of you and I'm thinking about all the things that make you distinct. You know, like Janet's desire to have things clean. That's just weird. You know? <laughs> but our distinctions then aren't just things to be ashamed of. They're actually things to use. Because that's where Ehud really stood out. Because why was he able to get to the king in this manner? Well, he was able to overcome this prejudice. He was able to be so trustworthy that the people of Israel trusted him. So also then the king trusted him. So the king allowed him into the, into the chamber alone, which is crazy. Also, the prejudice, because nobody in their right, hand, in their right mind trusts a left-handed person. So when you check someone for weapons during this day and age, they didn't have their sword on the same side as their dominant hand. They reached across. And so Ehud took his distinction, took the thing that people were prejudiced against him for, and he used it to his advantage because he took his sword and put it on his right-hand side. So if you're checking someone for weapons, where do you check them? The left-hand side, because that's where you reach across to grab. And so if you're going to have a weapon, you're going to have it on your right-hand side. Ehud said, I can make use of this. I'm going to put it on my left side. So what's the application here? What makes you... I'm going to put it on my right side. Thanks, Jim. I'm going to take my left-handed weapon on my right side. Nobody's going to look there. And so what makes... The question is, what makes you distinct? What makes you different? What makes you unique? What is that thing that you've been battling all your life because you just don't quite fit? I don't know what that would be. You know, I, actually, I have some guesses for quite a few of you. Um, but when you're thinking about that, how do we interact with our differences? Do we take them and look at them as things we should be ashamed of? Or do we take our differences and look at them as opportunities that God has given us to interact with this world specifically? Honestly, um, so growing up, I've... I've always felt kind of different because I'm not very, like, socially suave. <laughs> Oftentimes, I'll say things that are insulting because I don't understand why they're insulting and people will become frustrated with me. Uh, you know, that's, that whole foot and mouth disease, yeah, that, I have that. Um, but you know what that's done? That's forced me to look at basically all of the ways that people interact, try to understand them so that I can then interact properly with normal human beings. And that's become a huge open door for me because now I can take stuff like this and I can explain it into the ways that human beings actually work because the ways that human beings work doesn't make any sense to me. I just... I don't understand it intuitively. Like my brother, he can just go and talk to almost anybody. I don't understand that. Um, just naturally. It's just there. But I'm not like that. I have to actually really pay attention to what's going on. 
So those distinctions are opportunities if we prepare. If we look at them and study them and ask the question, you know, and as we're asking that question, we're not just asking that question of ourselves. We're asking that question of God. Okay, God, how can I use this? How can I use my experiences growing up in the country? How can I use my experiences, you know, living in Wisconsin? How can I use my experiences in these manners? How can I use these things in order to propagate your gospel? In order to interact with other people? How can I use my distinctions, my distinctivenesses? How can I use those? Because the reason that God has given them to us is so that they can be of benefit to the rest of the world. Not just to make us isolated, but rather to grow the kingdom of God. And so now that we have them, whatever weaknesses that we have, whatever distinctions we have, whatever frustrations we have, the ways that we interact with this world are gifts because we can use those to bring the gospel. And so those failings that you've had in your past, God can redeem those to make them successes for the future. That's what God does. God used a left-handed guy. He can use you. God used his left-handedness. It doesn't matter what you've done. God can use it. But it takes preparation. It takes work. Ehud made this sword, created his own sheath, put it on his right-hand side so that he could use it. It takes work, it takes prayer, it takes activity. Ehud was blessed by the Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit. Because if you look, read through, when we're reading through the story... I don't know if you caught all of the strange happenings that happened. You know, how many of you have ever, you've, all of you, I'm guessing, have read through the book of Judges before, right? It's a great book. If you haven't read through it, you know, sit down one day, just read through it. It's just a great book. But when God's spirit is upon someone, it works on the inside of that person first. Uh, not first. Also, it works, the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit's so big. And he works in so many ways. But the Holy Spirit is upon Ehud. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute. And so the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. So as God does that, he doesn't say it in this passage specifically, or this uh, story specifically, but when he raised up someone, it says that his, oftentimes it says his spirit came upon them. Not in them, but upon them. And so when the Holy Spirit came upon Ehud, we start to see this change in Ehud. Well, not really a change, but we see this distinctiveness in Ehud. Because as Ehud is planning this and preparing this, this is dangerous stuff. So you look at what Ehud did. He brought the tribute, but then he had his guys with him, and he had the tribute, and this was you know, all organized and all settled. This is the way that things happened. Because they'd been doing this for, what, 18 years or something of that sort? Um, yeah, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. And so this was established. But then Ehud does something different. Ehud sends his guys away, all of the rest of the people with him. And now imagine this for a moment. Put yourself in the place of Ehud. Ehud is decked out for war. He's got a sword on his right-hand side. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to go and assassinate the king of Moab. Not only is he going to go and assassinate the king of Moab, he's going to go and assassinate the king of Moab alone. 
Not only is he going to go and assassinate the king of Moab alone, he's going to do it in the king's own palace. Think about that for a moment. Think about the trip from the idols of Gilgal all the way back to the palace of Moab. What's he going to do? I'm going to go into the king's palace and I'm going to stab him. What are the odds that Ehud's going to come out alive? Terrible. Those odds are terrible. Because he's in the king's palace. And so Ehud does this courageous thing. Ehud takes this unique distinctiveness of his, and then he uses it to bring this message, which is quite a message, to the king of Moab. And so that's courage. That's courage. That's creativity. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. This ability to see the situation and to to take the opportunities that God has presented in it, using his distinction and his um, distinctiveness and differences. That's the Holy Spirit. And so this is why we as Christians need the Holy Spirit. Because these opportunities exist all around us, right? What does Jesus say? The harvest is lacking. We don't need anybody. Plentiful. The laborers are few. What's the problem? The people aren't seeing the opportunities that God has everywhere. You know, that's the story of the good Samarit- or the Samaritan woman, too. The fields are white unto harvest. This is our world. This is the world we live in. We're like, oh, you know, it's really hard here, and there's a lot of non-Christians, and this is terrible. And God's standing there saying, this is your opportunity. Ah, I don't want it, God. I'm good. No, this is why we need the Holy Spirit. This is why we call out to the Holy Spirit to come upon us. You know, to fill us as Christians so that we'll see the opportunities and be able to use the gifts that God has given us to bring the gospel into this world, to defeat the enemy. Because the enemy really isn't the individual that we're, when you're evangelizing, they're not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. This person is the prize. We're fighting Satan over a prize. And that's the soul of this individual. The Holy Spirit works on the inside. He gives us insight, opportunity, wisdom, courage. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Some of the things the Holy Spirit does. But then he also works on the outside because he works in the circumstances. So as you read through this, what's going on? What circumstances did God work for Ehud? So we start out, verse 19. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. That's the king commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. God worked in the circumstances. God had all the attendants leave. What would have happened to Ehud had the attendants been there? He would have been captured. Most likely would have been killed. What else happens? And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. And so there we see God working in Ehud. Because Ehud didn't pull the sword out. You know, would it have looked obvious had someone been running through the palace with a bloody dripping sword? Kind of, sort of. They were like, yeah, where'd they get that? I don't remember that being in the king's chamber. No, Ehud leaves it in there. So this is another way that God is working inside of Ehud. Gives him wisdom and understanding so that I'm going to leave this here. He leaves behind his only defense. 
Now all he's got is his feet and his fists. You know, you think about that. I would have kept the sword. Why is that? Because I'm not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's smarter than we are. So he leaves the sword inside of the king. That's God working. The fat closed in on the sword. and You know what? The interesting thing is the dung came out. Why is that interesting? It actually plays into the story later. He's constipated. He is so constipated that when the sword comes in, stuff comes out. So when Ehud closes the door to the upper chamber, what do the attendants say? Ah, he's relieving himself. Okay, so there's another thing. The king's in the upper chamber, in the cool of the upper chamber. He is away from the rest of the palace. You know what? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit made sure that the king was in the right spot so that when the deed was done, when God's man was doing the work, it worked out. So the king's in the upper chamber, the king's alone, the king's away from everyone else in the palace, and the king is constipated. So he closes the doors and locks them. Another insight given by the Holy Spirit. And the attendants stand there saying, it's no big deal, he's probably relieving himself. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. So long that they themselves were embarrassed for waiting. So this isn't like a three-minute dealio here. You know, he's not just reading the Reader Digest jokes. He's going through the whole magazine sort of a deal. They're waiting and waiting and waiting. And during all that time of waiting, what's Ehud doing? Getting away. So is God able to work circumstances? Is God able to use these things, Jim? Gilgal, yep. They're on the other side of the Jordan. Yep, that's quite a distance. Yep, he goes all the way up into the mountains of Ephraim, which uh, if I can get, you know, the mountains of Ephraim are up north of Jerusalem. Yeah. Well, it was probably a couple days journey. And so like they didn't go in. But news traveled about as fast as foot, you know, or horse or camel or whatever animal they would be riding. But it was long enough so that Ehud had a good enough distance ahead of him between them so that they couldn't catch up to him. And so, yeah, it, we're not talking, we're not talking a little short time here. God worked a really big problem for Eglon turned out to a really big blessing for Ehud. And so when we're looking at the Holy Spirit working, you know, this is what we look for. Because Ehud is an example of the Holy Spirit at work. And and this is why we this is why even we as Lutherans, we need to be praying that God would send us the Holy Spirit. You know, because God says, if, if your son asks you for 
a fish, would you give him a snake? If he asked for a loaf of bread, would you give him a stone? How much more so will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? You know, this is why, this is the Holy Spirit at work in the Old Testament. How much more and how much bigger in the New Testament? This is why we want the Holy Spirit in our lives to be directing us and to be guiding us so that as we seek His will, He will make not only the inside of us walk in righteousness, but He'll make the external circumstances work out as we seek His will, to the end of His will, to the glory of His name. And this happens all throughout Scripture. Every time in Scripture that we interact with the Holy Spirit, it is a good thing. You know, Ezekiel's kind of uh, difficult. (laughs) But nevertheless, it's the Holy Spirit that takes us and that uses us and that molds us. He is the one that has given us our distinctiveness, our uniqueness, our issues, so that we can then use those for the glory of His kingdom. And so when you think of Ehud, remember, Ehud was a left-handed man. But God can use even left-handed men to bring the glory, to bring His glory, to bring His gospel into this world. God works. So when you say, you know, I, I just don't know enough. Remember Ehud. I'm not going to have the right words. Remember Ehud. Things just don't work out like that. Remember Ehud. God is powerful, and he can even use left-handed people. (laughs) Praise God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for telling us that Ehud was left-handed. Lord, and I ask that you would, Lord, that you would grant us the courage to cry out for your spirit upon us. Lord, that we would surrender and submit ourselves to you, Lord, to your will and to your plan for our lives, but rather than our own. Lord, that you would work and that you would be glorified and that you would use us as an example into this world of the power of you. Lord, that you would use even us. We thank you. Lord, that with all of our issues and problems and frustrations, Lord, that you can use those Help us to see the opportunities that you have for us. Or that we might grow. And that your kingdom might come to us. And even through us. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.